Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we're joined by Rachel Perinello, Sales Compensation Practice Leader at the Alexander Group. Today, we'll be covering three main areas with Rachel. First, state of B2B technology compensation in 2022 and beyond. The impact of usage-based pricing or consumption-based pricing on compensation models. And third, what are the key variables to consider in developing your FY22 compensation models and plans specifically to usage-based pricing environments? Rachel, can you please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much, Ray, for inviting me to be here today. And thank you for those who are tuning in to this podcast. I've been at the Alexander Group for 22 years now. The Alexander Group is a revenue growth consulting firm, and we basically help our clients with their strategy, their structure, and their management practices to help their clients grow their revenue in a profitable way. And about 14 years ago, I decided to specialize at the Alexander Group with regard to sales compensation. And the reason why I grabbed onto this practice area within the Alexander Group is I really loved sort of the political arena that the sales compensation program design process fell within. You have the sales leaders who think about sales compensation as their key lever to drive their revenue growth strategy. You have HR that needs to you know, make sure that the plan aligns to their pay philosophy and reward philosophy. And then you have finance, obviously, that wants to make sure that it fits within the budget. And then you have operations who needs to make sure that they can operationalize the compensation program design. So getting all those stakeholders together in a room to agree on a plan design structure is a lot of fun. And so that's probably the main reason why I decided to focus in this area at the Alexander Group. So in my role at the Alexander Group today as a principal, I oversee our benchmarking as well as oversee our IP as it pertains to sales compensation plan design. I'm based in the Valley, the Silicon Valley, and so I tend to work almost predominantly with our technology clients. And over the past six, seven, eight years, I've been working a lot with consumption-based companies. So for example, Snowflake, Databricks, Google Cloud, uh, and other companies like that. And so it's been kind of fun to see how these companies have adopted a consumption-based pricing model. And that led me here today. So excited to be here and share what I know. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. And I never thought of sales compensation being kind of an analogy to the political arena, but you're so right. And there's not just two sides of the aisle, right? Sometimes there's three or four sides of the aisle, as you mentioned. But let's kind of double click right into 
sales compensation for B2B SaaS and cloud companies. And my first question is, you see the evolution of go-to-market motions. You see more consumption-based or usage-based pricing models. You see product-led growth models. But I really don't see sales compensation models have evolved that much in the last 10 to 15 years. Would you agree with that? Or do you see a lot of evolution of comp models and comp plans? I actually do. I've seen quite a large evolution of the sales compensation models, primarily with the measurement system. And I would argue that the measures is the most important part of the plan design process because the measures are going to direct your sellers on what to do and how to spend their time. So if you go back 20 years ago, we were predominantly, particularly in the software space, we were predominantly on-prem perpetual models with maintenance subscriptions that were sold, you know, to provide support and upgrades to their software. A very different kind of sales process model, right? You kind of land and then every once in a while, you, you know, you get the renewal, the maintenance renewal. And then what you're trying to do is expand with new new products or maybe get them to buy for, for new users. And then Salesforce came along and they completely changed the model, right? They started with their cloud-based subscription model. And then all these other companies came along and they took their on-prem perpetual model and they started to sell it as a term subscription because they wanted to move into this recurring revenue business model that was being valued by the marketplace. And so we had this trend from on-prem to cloud, as well as from perpetual license models to subscription models, whether they be on-prem term licenses or SaaS, you know, in the cloud licenses. And so what that has done is completely changed the measures that we see. So we used to just see kind of bookings measures or billings measures. And now we get in the world of TCV and ACV. And there was a huge shift over the years from TCV to ACV. And then in addition to that, what that has driven is we're now living in what I call an I-layer model, right? Identify, land, adopt, expand, renew. So whenever you move to a subscription model, it's no longer about the land and expand. There's an adopt phase and a renew phase that are very important. And so we get into this world when we talk about compensation, we get into, okay, how do we treat the renewals? In addition, how do we treat multi-year deals versus one-year deals? In addition, how do we think about adoption and rewarding for adoption and the incomes, the customer success role? And then on top of all this, many companies in the subscription world have moved to what we call land and expand strategy, right? Where they start with a tiny land and then they expand after that. So how do we compensate a seller to do a small land and not try to push out the deal length and the deal cycle so that they get, they maximize this big, large deal, you know, which causes some customer consternation. So lots of changes going on. Actually, that's what's kept the Alexander Group very busy over the last 20 years. There's a lot that we could dig into there, Rachel, but let me kind of zoom out for just a minute first for the listening audience. And can you define what consumption-based pricing models mean? And is there more than one type? 
Yes. So when we think about consumption-based pricing models, we think about a pricing model where the customer or the client will pay the vendor after they've used the product based on some sort of usage metric. Right. So I've seen everything from, you know, number of terabytes used to number of active users on a system. Right. So there's some sort of metric that is based on kind of the value that the customer is getting from the product, which is a great thing. Right. And this is why I think a lot of companies want to go to a consumption based pricing model because it really ties you know, what a customer is using to how they're valuing your product. And so therefore you're very customer oriented. But anyway, that's that's sort of the, the premise of a consumption-based pricing model. But what we've tended to see is there's four different types of pricing models out there that are being used in consumption-based models. The first one is pretty straightforward, is completely no contract, right? So this is a pure pay-as-you-go model where a customer can just sign up and start putting in a credit card and there's no contract whatsoever and they pay as you go, you know, very popular in the SMB market. Then there is the next type of contract model, which we call the uncommitted contract. So there's a contract, but there's no committed volume within that contract. So a customer can actually spend zero amount or they can spend maybe a million dollars over the course of the year. But the contract actually sets up the pricing terms and it sets up other types of agreements. And so, but there's no dollar contractual agreement. The next one is what I call a committed contract. So it kind of sounds, oh, that's that's the same as a SaaS, a subscription. Well, no, it's a committed contract and we call it kind of a, a prepaid pool of funds. So what the customer is committing to is they're committing to a term length. Typically, they're committing to a pricing, but they're also committing to, I'm going to spend a million dollars over the next year with you. And usually companies will offer this committed contract because they can then give discounts to the customer. And also companies will offer it because that gives them predictability into their revenue stream. So that's one thing with consumption models some people are concerned about is the ability to forecast their their revenue streams because particularly in a completely uncommitted or a no contract model. But the beauty of these committed contract models is you do get a commitment up front. And the hope is that you get them to use up their commitment within six months and not a year. And then the final model is sort of this hybrid model, which we call kind of committed and committed. So there may be, you know, half of the contract, like I commit to 500k for this year, but then there's, you know, we we estimate that there's going to be another 500K that will probably get spent over that time period. So anyway, knowing what kind of pricing model that you have will actually help determine what the right compensation solution is. And it gets a lot more complicated, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, when you have multiple pricing models within your consumption business. And then also on top of that, maybe you also have a pure SaaS business or even some on, you know, on-prem perpetual and even maybe some you know, services. You know, frankly, a lot of companies are still providing services that they attach to their software solutions. Well, Rachel, what you just shared, I'm, I'm building this matrix, right, in my <laughs> mind yeah. about 
what my consumption-based pricing model is, who's responsible for it, how do I pay for it? And in 30 minutes, we're not going to be able to cover it all. So let me double click on two of those models you just shared. And the first is the uncommitted contract where there's no volume. There may be some pricing terms in the uncommitted contract, but no volume. How do you see most companies compensating the, whether it's sales or customer success resource in a Mm -hmm. uncommitted contract model? Yeah. So when I think about sales compensation plans, I think about the persuasion event, because at the end of the day, the purpose of the sales compensation plan is to pay for persuasion for your sellers to persuade your customers to use or buy your product. And the whole reason why we have sellers, by the way, is because our customers have uncertainty and doubt. And so their role is to persuade the customers to you know, be comfortable with you know, our solutions. So persuasion is, you know, if I, if I leave you with anything, when you're thinking about sales compensation plan design, constantly be thinking about persuasion, because that will dictate whether or not they should be on a sales comp plan, whether or not they should have high pay at risk versus low pay at risk. It also dictates the measurements. So when I think about uncommitted contracts, there is a persuasion event in getting that contract sold. So I'm a big believer that there should be some way to reward for that upfront persuasion event and what companies are using that we see in our practice and our database will depend. It varies dramatically. And the reason why it varies is some companies, actually a lot of fintech companies can do this. They can actually estimate that contract value quite well. For example, a technology firm selling to a bank who is going to use their software for mortgages. They know they can get third-party data that tells them how many mortgages that bank usually does. So if you can estimate the value and you can pay part, not all, part of your sales compensation plan for that estimated value, I say definitely do that. If you can't estimate the value, then what I would do is do some sort of bonus or bounty or reward for that contract close. Then the rest of the compensation plan, I believe, should be based on the the revenue that flows in the door. Now, this gets really tricky if you have hunter and farmer models, meaning that the hunter lands the deal and then hands it off to a farmer. But for what I call a rancher model, it's perfect, right? Because they're hunting, they get the bounty up front, and then they get the ongoing revenue as they help their customers uh, drive the revenue. Let me ask a question about rancher, because some of our listening audience may not have heard that. What is a rancher and how common are you seeing that? hybrid role in consumption-based pricing model companies? Yeah. So when we say rancher, we mean that they're hunting and they're farming. So they have a ranch and they're doing all of it. You know, we, we just actually did some research in our database. We pulled all of our clients over the last couple of years um, where we did work with them. I think we have about like 70 different companies across different business models, you know, hybrid companies, pure subscription companies, and then pure consumption companies. And quite a few of the pure consumption companies are using what I call a rancher model. Now, I believe that's going to vary. And that's more in the sort of the software space. If we go to the fintech space, we just did a separate study there. 
they tend to use more the hunter farmer model where they have a hunter landing a deal and then handing over to a farmer. But one of the things that I've been seeing that dictates whether or not companies use a rancher versus a hunter farmer model is who is their buying entity and how easy is it to pass the information from the initial land, you know, that contact, that initial land, and then pass that information to another resource who will manage the customer. So if they're different resources internally at a customer, it's easier to pass it off. But if you're selling into IT, what I typically have seen is it's hard to pass that relationship off. And so they tend to, to have more of a rancher model. I'm going to ask one more question on the uncommitted contract model. And this is going to be a tough one because I know there's no standard. But yeah. if you look at the company says, I'm going to pay, let's say it's 10% of revenue out in variable comp. Overall, what percentage is being allocated to the land, i.e. get the uncommitted contract customer versus what percentage of variable comp is being allocated to the actual revenue received? For a rancher model, I don't have an exact benchmark here, but based on my experience, I would say probably 20%. 20% to the land, acquire the customer, and the rest to the actual revenue generated from that customer. Right. So let me actually talk a little bit more about that. So remember, I talked about persuasion, and there's a persuasion step to land that customer. There's also persuasion to drive ongoing adoption and usage. So persuasion doesn't stop. And most of my clients, now this may vary for some companies, most of my clients, that seller is you know, usually coupled with a CSM role, but they are responsible to drive that adoption and that renewal and that expansion. And so what's interesting about a consumption-based pricing model is in a, in a subscription model, you go land and then you get them to adopt and then you try to sell more, right? You expand and then eventually the renewal comes around. So it's, you know, it's sequential. Whereas in a consumption model, I believe the adoption, the expansion, and the renewal are happening simultaneously, right? Every month, you're trying to get them to use more. That's the adoption, which drives, you know, obviously, their, you know, the ongoing renewal, which is much continue to use that same run rate of, of usage. But also, you're trying to drive new, new use cases, new users, new features, right? So you're trying to constantly be expanding on a monthly basis. So all those things are happening simultaneously. And I, I think you were going to talk about later, you know, how do we get sales and customer success to work, you know, collaboratively together? You have to recognize the fact that those things are happening simultaneously and we need those resources to work collectively together to drive that, right? One is own, owning the business stakeholders and the other one is uh, typically the customer success are responsible for owning the relationship with the users, of the solution. So they have different kind of contacts that they're focusing on. And so it's critical to get kind of rules of engagement defined between the seller and the customer success role, even though they're kind of both involved in what I call this post-land adopt, expand, renew process that's ongoing. So one last question on the uncommitted contract model. This is the million dollar question. How long 
do you compensate the person who owned the responsibility for acquiring that customer, even if she or he doesn't long-term have the expansion responsibilities, maybe that's CS, how long do you compensate that person for? Is it for only one year? Is it for multiple years? Are there any standards out there, Rachel? Oh my goodness. Yeah. No, if you have a, what I call land and expand bifurcated hunter and farmer model, it becomes very challenging, particularly if you have an elongated sales cycle. So we see this a lot in FinTech, for example, where they get the contract signed up and then it takes like six months to deploy the solution. And then the usage starts really small and it builds over time. So how do you compensate that that hunter at the time of the land and then have, you know move on and move on to the next customer? So I've seen it vary, you know, dramatically from, you know, three months to a year to perpetuity. Again, it depends on what the role is responsible for with the ongoing usage and consumption and driving that. And so I think in your question, you said that they're not, they're going to hand it over, but sometimes they are asked to continue to drive that. And, you know, with many PLG companies, right, there's a lot of times where that consumption and that usage is driven from the product and not necessarily seller. And so trying to figure out, you know, who is driving the persuasion, the product or the sales team and the customer success team. So sorry, I don't have a uh, silver bullet solution for you there or answer. It's going to vary dramatically, but we do see, you know, quite a few companies thinking about sunsetting the credit at, at a certain period of time, or we do see some companies thinking about a different measurement system. So instead of measuring on the total revenue, they may measure the growth, right? So in growth is usually, you know, year over year or quarter over quarter or month over month, right? There's some sort of period over period growth type of measurement system. Yeah. So a model that I've used and seen in the non-committed is you pay X percent over the first year of actual revenue generated and X minus Y percent second year and then outlying years, maybe it goes down even more or nothing at all. Do you see that kind of tiered compensation model where it reduces each year, but still is paid to the person responsible for the initial acquisition? Yes, yes. So that's another methodology. Instead of just doing a, you know, hey, you get no payment after a year, it's what we call it a payment at a declining rate over a certain period of time. Okay, now... In the nuanced world, I'm going to go to that third type of consumption-based pricing model, which is committed prepaid. Is that the the right way to phrase it, Rachel? Yeah, committed prepaid pool of funds, I call it sometimes. Yep. Mm -hmm. So often, and let's use the example, I have a direct salesperson responsible for the acquisition and getting that commitment made. And then there's customer success responsible for the ongoing adoption and expansion of that product. In that that model, do you see the salesperson responsible acquisition getting paid just a percent of the booking, the commitment, and none of the growth? Or do you see it more common they get paid something for the initial commitment and then still have some upside on the actual revenue growth above the commitment level? 
Well, it's, it's interesting. And this model, most of my clients I'm working with have a rancher model. So what they, what the predominant solution, you know, think of like AWS and all these Snowflake and all these companies, but the predominant model I've seen is a dual measure plan, which has a predominant measure is actually the consumption revenue. And then the other measure is the ACV, right? The annual contract value. And then there's usually a bonus for multi-year you know, deals, you know, and maybe some other kind of, you know, incentives for specific types of products and things of that nature. But the dual measure plan tends to be the predominant measure that I'm seeing. Now, if you had just a hunter model, you know, where they hand off to a CSM or account manager to do the ongoing farmer in this type of pricing model, then definitely I, I would typically just see an ACV model. You know, it really depends sometimes. I mean, I've seen this more with the sort of the hybrid committed and uncommitted where there would be a true up, right? So we paid you because we thought the deal, you know, the initial contract value was, you know, $1 million. But six months later, we found out that they are using a lot more and we were able to renegotiate it. So there's kind of a, a true up, like we can true up the initial seller say, hey, you really landed a client that had a lot of upside. Because remember, a lot of these companies are going to be in a land and expand strategy. They want to land small and then expand later on. So recognizing the initial seller for bringing in an account that's going to have a big expansion, it's, it's tricky. It's a hard thing to do because you want them moving on to the next customer. And you don't want them to delay, you know, getting that that initial deal by saying, hey, I instead of landing this, you know, 100K deal, I'm going to try to make it 500K and make it four months longer, right? So it's a challenging one. So I'm going to pivot to a little bit different topic. It's a little bit away from consumption-based pricing compensation models. And traditionally, we look at what percentage of revenue or bookings we wanted to pay a sales professional. And often it was around 20%, and 10% of that was in base salary, and 10% was in variable comp. So if someone had a million-dollar quota, they'd probably have 100000 or a little bit greater variable comp. Do you still see that kind of 50-50 model in the consumption-based world? Or once again, are you seeing so much of that now being moved to variable versus base salary? I'm actually seeing 50-50 be the prevalent model from a pay mix standpoint in with these companies with consumption pricing models. So that hasn't changed. I think most companies are saying, hey, we still need these sellers. There's still uncertainty and doubt. They still need them to drive, you know, drive that persuasion. Where I am seeing the pay mix become maybe less aggressive is when you have a hunter-farmer model and you move it from the hunter to the farmer and the farmer, maybe, you know, a lot of that growth is product-led or, and they're doing a little bit of selling plus some maybe customer success type activity. Maybe they're, they're more of a 60-40. And then, you know, and sometimes even in some businesses, they say, you know, our product's really driving the sale and we spend a ton on marketing and the leads are just 
is coming in the door. So we really want more of a 60-40 model, even for our hunters, right? So again, I always think about how much persuasion does that job have relative to maybe your marketing engine, your product growth engine, right? And that will help dictate whether or not you should go more or less aggressive than the kind of the market median, which is typically a 50-50 for a kind of hunting sales role. You know, one of the great pieces of advice I've heard today, Rachel, is really identifying that persuasion event or even possibly persuasion events. It's very similar in the product-led growth model. You have something called the activation point. It's like, when does a user use a particular feature that delivers Mm -hmm. the aha moment and it's an activation Mm -hmm. point? So what you're Mm -hmm. saying is foundational to compensation planning and consumption-based usage, identify those persuasion events, correct? Exactly. You're right. Now, one last question that I have for you, and I can't believe that our 30 minutes have already almost come to an end. And that is in this consumption-based pricing model, in the product-led growth evolution, we're also facing the great resignation. We've all heard about it. Mm. Have you seen on-target earnings, OTE, for the hunters in a consumption-based pricing model go up over the last three to six months? Or do you see on-target earnings fairly stable in this environment? Oh, yes. No, this is a a really fascinating environment, regardless if you're PLG, consumption-based pricing, or just a general tech seller, or even in another industry, right, with a great resonation and just this fluidity in the, the talent pool. We are definitely seeing OTE levels go up across the board. I even heard from World at Work that the average merit increase budget this year, I want to say it's usually 3% a year. And this is regardless of sellers versus non-selling roles. I think it's roughly 3.7 or 3.9. I can't remember exactly what it is. So that's in the U.S., right? So it's going to be different in different countries. So that's an indicator that companies are recognizing that they need to address the fact that pay levels are increasing dramatically. And then I know for a fact that we have been called a lot by multiple customers and clients to help them think through not just their pay levels, but think through what we call their job architecture that incorporates the pay level. So think through, you know, the leveling, the career path, articulating that, making it competency-based. So what are the competencies required to move from one level to another level, or even an SDR to an AE to, you know, a global account manager, right? What, how many levels and how long does it take you to get there? And then mapping up competitive pay structures against that. And then, you know, making market adjustments and doing a complete analysis to the entire sales force and, you know, making those market adjustments and then having that whole communication strategy to help sellers understand how or help people in the sales organization to understand what their career path opportunity is at their firm. Yeah. You know, I didn't even think about asking you this question, Rachel, but I got to do it now that we brought up this kind of great resignation. And that is we can target paying 50-50 of OTE and we can target 10% gets paid on the variable side. However, the other trend I'm seeing is lower quota achievement rates. And we won't talk about the reasons, but instead of 
80% of people making quota. I'm seeing it at 60, 70% of people making quota. How important is the overall sales achievement rate from a quota perspective factor into how you establish quotas in 2022? Interesting that you're seeing it around 50 to 60%. So this has been a, a data point that we collect in our database as well. And it has been going down. Actually, we have it around 40%, depending on which cohort we're looking at, hybrid companies versus pure play. So meaning only 40% of sellers are achieving their quota. Now, this is when we think about it, we think about sellers that have that are, don't have ramping quotas, right? So a lot of these product-led growth companies have a lot of people with ramping quotas and, and partial year quotas and things of that nature. So it's been really low. And, and I think that may be one of the reasons why some sellers are saying, hey, I haven't been able to hit my quota. So therefore, I'm going to move to another company. I got this neat opportunity over here. So I think companies need to think about that for sure, because when you don't have enough people participating in the upside of the plan, so we call it participation rate, how many people are achieving quota to participate in their upside of the compensation plan, that's very demotivating. And sellers are motivated, we know, by money, but they're also motivated by having a goal and achieving that goal. And so when those goals become unmotivational, right, you know, there's obviously an opportunity for them to think about moving somewhere else. That being said, I will give everyone a tip. What you need to do in the SaaS and consumption base, just in the technology marketplace in general, you should not only measure percent of folks achieving quota, but percent of folks achieving their target incentive. So what we've seen is a lot of technology companies are providing multi-year bonuses or they're rewarding on-top bonuses for different services or solutions or, or even the renewals might be outside of the comp plan and they pay that you know, above. And so we have to be careful is a lot of our clients, when we, when we come in and we take a look at their compensation structure, we find out that 40% are achieving quota, yet 60% are achieving their target incentive because they've gone kind of a, a client of mine said this the other day, they went spiff Paul Palooza, right? Like it was just kind of, they went crazy with all the spiffs and add-on bonuses. And so definitely need to rein that in if that, that delta becomes too big between percent achieving quota and percent achieving target incentive. Well, that's a great tip, Rachel. And unfortunately, we're coming to an end, but I do want to give the listening audience a chance just to get to know Rachel a little bit better. So just three quick questions and kind of in rapid fire to get to know you a little bit better. Is there a CEO or company that you think is a must follow today for B2B tech employees? There's not any specific CEOs that I follow, but there's definitely companies I look at, particularly because I'm very interested in consumption-based pricing models. So I'm looking at, obviously, AWS. I'm looking at companies like Twilio and Snowflake, just kind of seeing what they're doing and how they're innovating with their sales organizations and their consumption models. Second question, is there a tool or a category of tools that every SaaS company should be using to help manage sales compensation? Well, just because I focus on sales compensation, <laughs> I definitely I'd be admiss to not talk about the fact that companies should think about their sales performance management system or their incentive compensation administration system. And there's it's it's actually been interesting to see. There's a lot of the the standard companies who've been around for a while, but there's a whole slew of new companies that just popped up recently. So lot of opportunities out there to get away from Excel and sheets and, and, you know, and actually have a 
an administrative system that can support your compensation design and communication. Got you. So I think the advice there is no Excel tool, use a sales performance management tool if at all possible, right? Definitely. And then third is, if you were talking to a recent college graduate that said, I really want to be the next great B2B cloud founder, but I want to do it through the sales channel, what advice would you give them? The, uh, the advice I would give them is know your customers, definitely, and focus, right? So we see a lot of niche players, best and breed players are the ones that are winning in this world. So, you know, if you can focus on a demand that is not being met, and so, and to be able to understand that demand, you need to really understand what your customers' needs are, and maybe what they don't know what their needs are, if you have that intuitive insight to go that far, but that would be my advice. Well, that was Rachel Perinello, the head of the sales compensation practice at the Alexander Group. Rachel, if people have follow-up questions or just want to learn more, how can they reach you? Yeah, sure. You can um, reach me at our website, alexandergroup.com, or you can reach me through LinkedIn, Rachel Perinello. And we've got lots of events. We've got lots of data. We've got lots of blogs. We also have podcasts on our website. So feel free to check out the alexandergroup.com's website and love to communicate with you in the future. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for being our guest on the Metrics to Measure Up podcast today. Thank you so much, Ray, for having me. And it would mean the world to us if you're enjoying the guests and content that we're covering here on the Metrics to Measure Up podcast, go ahead and subscribe to our channel and provide us a rating and even a recommendation of how we can make the podcast even more valuable. Rachel, thank you once again for being our guest today. Thank you, everybody. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsquared.com.